Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name is Andy. Sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot whose face is coming off at the moment. Don't worry, he's fine. It's just something lizards, <laughs> lizards do. And uh, sitting opposite me is Liam. How are you, my friend? Yes. 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 Present and correct. That's, yeah. <laughs> about the How are you, mate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm okay. I'm okay. Good. Yeah. Yes, it is uh, fairly hot again in the UK, which is nice to get those last gasps of summer at the moment. I, I think what September is now my favourite month. Yeah, I think for the past few years, we've been having, you know, a good few days in September where it actually feel, especially the evenings, they feel like they should have consistently done throughout August. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you get rid of all the humidity and you just get those sort of, I don't know, that nice cool breeze in the evening. It's fucking lovely. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Better than uh, sitting around in our pants, which we very nearly came down to, actually. I don't know what you guys at home imagine we look like, but we haven't gone to our pants yet. If we do, we'll let you know and that can give you a you know a little kick. I don't, you know, we're not Calvin Klein models, but I don't think we look like the cast of Shameless either. No. I, th I, think, no. I think we're relatively okay. I sometimes wonder what the audience <laughs> thinks we look like actually because I bet it's way off I bet it's a million million miles away well you know I mean our American our American friends probably think well terrible teeth yeah you know, well you know but yeah, mine, you mine know, aren't great to be they fair they probably but... look as miserable as they sound you know I'm, I'm British a smoker a drinker and a coffee addict as well so yeah my, I mean they're okay don't get me wrong they're not rotting and falling out my head but yeah we have, we have yellow misshapen teeth, it's true. The oral hygiene industry will make a mint off of you, mate. It's weird. I often wonder how that happened because like, you look back at America's history. George Washington famously had wooden teeth, didn't he? He had wooden dentures. They can go and view them somewhere in, I don't know, Virginia or Maryland or somewhere like that. But um, yeah, I wonder where the split happened where Americans have this real, to a British mind anyway, they've got a real fascination with having really white teeth, whereas Brit the British people just don't, we don't look at people's teeth. Is that's, that's a thing. I don't know why. No, I've that's I just don't really care about them. It's a, it's the last thing, I, unless they are literally thin yellow sticks that have a, uh, decayed to such an extent. That I'm thinking of some people we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you can't help but notice them because nobody could help but notice them. Then fine, but no, I don't. If I look at somebody's teeth and they're not, you know, then they're, they're not so bright that they're blinding me. I don't. I just don't care. Yeah, you know, it's just. But I knew a guy actually. He was an old biker, um, ZZ Top looking dude. Do you remember this guy? Right, I'm not gonna say his name. I know. I know. Who you're talking about yeah but um he had almost no teeth left because he was a, a biker you know and he had again zz top beard he was in his 70s and then one day he came down the pub i used to drink and he was a regular there and he'd had dentures put in but they were like the hollywood smile dentures and it was the weirdest fucking thing it was like zz top's beard with tom cruise's mouth shining out of it and everybody went oh fuck what have you done to yourself that's that's a demon right there man i mean he didn't care you know he could eat steak again so yeah he didn't care about anything <laughs> no not much not much no no the mad axeman he used to be known as yeah well that was the sentimentalist dental rant yeah <laughs> speaking of which i'm gonna tie this back into some film related stuff actually because i'm about to talk about tom cruise and it's been pointed out many, many times across the internet. Tom Cruise has got, there's a medical term for it, but he's, rather than having his- tooth, Psychosis? Well, yeah, that. <laughs> and a bad case of Scientology. But he's got his two front teeth uh, shifted to one side, which means he's got one tooth. If you split his face down the middle, if you draw a line down the middle of his face, he's got one tooth in the middle of his face. It's a perfect tooth, but it's right in the middle. And now I've told you that, and I've told the audience that, you look out for it because you won't be able to unsee it. That just sounds very bizarre. Mm, yeah, it's an internet meme. 
But yes. But then I, it is it's Tom Cruise, and bizarre is the operative word. Yes, in, in all senses. Yes, it ties very nicely into my first news article this week, which is, I mean, everyone's reporting on it, but I got this from filmnews.co.uk. Top Gun, Maverick, and Mission Impossible 7 have been delayed by several months. Paramount Studios have announced an overhaul of their release schedule due to concerns about the highly contagious Delta variant of coronavirus, which has swept the globe, and despite recently showing clips from both Tom Cruise blockbusters at CinemaCon, fans will now have an even longer wait to see the films. Top Gun Maverick, which had originally been scheduled for release on 24th of June 2020, is moving from its planned pre-Thanksgiving release of 19th November this year to 27th of May next year. The slot Mission Impossible 7 was due to take, but that movie will now be pushed back by four months and will hit cinemas on 30th of, se- of September 2022. We are not shutting this fucking movie down! Apparently we are. <laughs> <laughs> All that rushing about for nothing, right? Yeah, so, well... You know, I mean, to be honest, mm. this is a we had a sort of a moratorium on talking about James Bond. Because James Bond was always in the news, the uh, No Time to Die or whatever it was. We decided to stop talking about it because it kept moving its release date around. And it's just released its um, supposedly final trailer this week as well, which I think is like the sixth or seventh trailer they've released for it. So I feel like I have seen the entire film now. But we decided to stop talking about it because it was fucking around too much. And look, we'll get to it eventually and we'll review it. And I'm proposing live here on the podcast that we stop talking about Mission Impossible 7 and Top Gun Maverick and Tom Cruise. Because he's popping up in the news constantly at the moment. There's, if you want to read about Tom Cruise and all his dealings of what he's up to, there's a million bits of that. I'm, I'm bored of it, and I'm pretty sure the audience is at this point too. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I mean, everything has always really been cruise ad nauseum when you study it hard enough. Mm. And I mean, yeah, at this point, if uh, news feeds relate to film are just being saturated and bombarded with stuff about him... It, the the lesser stuff is way better. I'm going to add the caveat that if something really interesting happens, like he falls out of a plane and it wasn't intended or something like that, we'll put that in. But in the meantime, just assume that every big release at the moment is being delayed because of obvious reasons. And yeah. We'll, and we'll leave it at that, really. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of talking about delays. Let's talk about stuff that's actually Let's happening. put the cat in the bag and throw it in the river. Yes, what a lovely metaphor that is, but I entirely agree. Sweet smell of success, mate. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's, it's not about nice people, so... <laughs> How about this? this? is a lighter news article here. This is from uh, The Guardian. Queen of Denmark hired as set designer on new Netflix film. This is uh, Queen Margareth II, reigning monarch of Denmark, is to design the sets for a forthcoming Netflix film adapted from a novel by Karen Blixen, it has been announced. A romantic fantasy set in the fairy tale kingdom of Babenhausen. Erengard will be directed by Billy August, the veteran Danish director of Pelle the Conqueror, which won both the Palme d'Or and Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film in 1988, and The Best Intentions, which won August a second Palme d'Or. Margareth, who ascended to the Danish throne in 1972 and is commander-in-chief of the country's defence forces, has also had a long career as an artist, including drawing the illustrations for the Danish editions of Lord of the Rings and exhibitions at galleries including the Arkham Museum of Modern Art in Ishok near Copenhagen. I'm certain I pronounced that wrong. (laughs) She also has screen credits as a production designer on the 2009 fantasy fairy tale The Wild Swans and a short film adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen in 2000. What do we think about this? So it's the, the queen, the actual... Yes, Queen Margaret II. I'm assuming it's Margaret. That's, that's how it's written. Uh, Monarch of Denmark. So we don't really hear much about the uh, Danish royals. But I mean, it's nice to see a royal with a job, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, they're not really heard of in this country. I know that that's going to have a lot of people, you know, yeah, <laughs> jumping down off us. But, you know, yeah, they, we, you don't really see royals anywhere doing anything apart from hand-waving and 
standing around looking sort of resentful at charity events. So the fact that this person is being productive is is a big thumbs up. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we had this discussion before and probably pissed off any pro-monarchist people, but whatever, you know, about but, um, yeah, this whole thing about the, the royal family in this country is always making out that they're very, very useful because they turn up and support charities and things. And as best as I can tell, all those charity dinners, things are just, they're, they're big circle jerk business, um, you know, networking events, essentially. And not a lot of charity work is actually done. So I'm, you know, I think Queen Elizabeth II should now start, I don't know, working on the latest Ridley Scott film. I'd be very, very interested. Surely she's got ideas. She's had nothing else to do, really, other than think about stuff. Is Liz, is Liz a cinephile, do you reckon? Is she a film fan? Yeah, I would have thought so. She watches MasterChef in the UK. I know that much. They're very proud of that fact. They mention it occasionally. I hope she hates uh, Greg Wallace as much as I do. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, but, she's she's a woman of sense. I think she probably would. I've always got the... I'm absolutely... I'm quite anti-monarchy, really. I'm a bit of a Republican at heart. But... I do have a fair bit of respect for her as a person because I think she was, especially if you watch something like The Crown, and I know it's, there's fictionalization in there, but she was thrust into a job she didn't want. You know, she just wanted to, yeah, she had hopes and dreams and desires like everyone else, got put into this ridiculously important position at that time. And of all the things that she's been asked to do along the way, she's done a pretty good job of oh, yeah, if, it. If so I've want, got some time for her. The if, rest of them can go fuck If you want to do individuation, and, you know, with bottom of the heart sincerity, Liz. I've never had a problem with Liz because she just does what she does. It's all the rest of her family who've gone around acting like complete cocks. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I mean, she, she's, no, she's fine. But so, no, it's just, I very much doubt she listens to the Cinematalist podcast, but if she does, uh, hi, Liz. How are you? Hello, Madge. Yeah. Hope you're having a good one. We're about to recommend you some dark and interesting <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, my next article here from empireonline.com. George Miller casts Anya Taylor-Joy as Furiosa after seeing an early cut of Last Night in Soho. Right from her breakthrough role in The Witch, it was clear that Anya Taylor-Joy is a major talent. Since then, her cash has continued to rise through other horror thrillers like Glass and Thoroughbreds, period fare like Emma, and last year's massive Netflix hit, The Queen's Gambit. Next up, she's one of the leading stars of Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. And beyond that, she's set to take on one of the most iconic roles in the last decade of cinema. Imperator Furiosa, memorably brought to life by Charlize Theron in George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. Miller's long gestating Furiosa prequel is barreling towards production with Taylor Joy lined up to play the younger version of Theron's character. And the notion of casting her came after Wright screened him an early cut of Last Night in Soho. You were a big fan of The Witch, weren't you? I absolutely loved The Witch, and I thought that Anya Taylor-Joy was great as Thomasin. It was the first and lamentably the only thing I've seen her, and I'm ashamed to admit, but I haven't actually seen Thoroughbreds. I know that The Queen's Gambit was a big, big hit, but mm. I never, I still haven't got around to that. But yeah, just from The Witch alone, I thought that she had really, really vast potential as yeah. a performer. And uh, yeah, she's been picking up, um, she's been you know picking up a lot of momentum. So, I mean, this sounds interesting. Yeah, it's a bit remiss of me this actually because I'm very I really really love Mad Max Fury Road and I love Charlize Theron's performance as Furiosa. But I knew all the way along that the Furiosa the standalone film was going to be a prequel. But I always assumed somehow that Charlize Theron was going to play Furiosa in it. What about you? Um yeah, cuz it's it's just uh it makes the most sense. Yeah, I, I think she still looks she hasn't visibly yeah. aged. It's, it's, I mean, I tell, think but... like Charlie's Thrawn it's one of those instances where such and such is such and such. I just don't know when you say the name Furiosa. Yeah, she owned that role so yeah, much. The, the, the film was really about imagining her, wasn't it? anybody else apart from her. It just um 
it's like cognitively dissonant. There's like a, I just, I just can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. Just, but um, I'm very much looking forward to it. Anyway, it's been in pre-production for ages, but um, it seems to be starting production very, very soon. And yeah, I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy, I've seen her in a couple of things. Um, I did watch The Witch, actually. I thought it was great. When did you watch it? Uh, a couple of months ago. Yes. But I mean, you'd already reviewed it. So uh, I was going to bring oh, it up on the podcast, but never did. It's, uh, it's one of, um, prob- I'd say it's probably the best horror or at least it's way up in the like, top five horrors, obviously my subjective horrors of the 21st century. I think it's just um, atmospherically, inter- you know, the soundtrack, the performances, the whole screenplay, that is just, you know, it's minimalist horror predicated on dread. It disturbed the living shit out of me, which is what I need horror to do. Mm, yeah, on, pr- on that primal spine-tingling level. Like virtually sans violence, so uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a fucking masterpiece. I remember you actually brought up a specific bit on the podcast, and obviously we're not going to do spoilers here, so I'm going to be very, very vague about this. So the people that have seen it know what I mean, and the people that haven't done it spoiled anything. But um, when uh, the titular witch is um, first seen outside a house, and the way the music changes, yeah, that really, really got me. Yeah, going. that the the, the, uh, the score in particular in that scene, it just I, I've I've seen that film about two or three times now and it's still like no exaggeration and I know it's a much used phrase but hairs on arms in back of neck yeah, there yeah. is something that, that that I mean the whole film gets it right but especially the um the soundtrack shifts in that specific moment it just no there is something there just this crystalline knowledge of how to really strike mortal peril into and it's, art. it's know, a you, scary horror film without any jump scares in it it's all just chilling moments that yeah. are, I so much prefer that. It's so much more intelligent than just making something go boo. And as well, yeah, I, 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 you know, we've talked about it before, but I, I find a lot of modern jump scares in particular, I find myself being more irritated by them than scared by them. Whereas I was scared by the witch, but in a, it was nice to not be jumping out of your seat. It was more, oh, wow, that's really well done. That's creepy. Well, you know, you know, I mean, you know me, I've, I've always been really pissed off with jump scares, you know, because mm. when I get, because they do, I'm not going to, I've no shame admitting it. They, they do startle me in a way that, but it- break, In a way that kind of just makes you go, oh, fuck off. It, yeah, you know, it, like, it breaks- You can it, slam a cupboard door and make someone jump. Absolutely. Yeah. But it breaks my enjoyment. There's only a very, very few examples of jump scares that I think worked perfectly and actually did no harm whatsoever and actually did the antithesis of that to my vicarious experience of the character's experience. By and large, um, they do my fucking head in. And I'm glad that Robert Eggers has made a film, you know, his breakthrough film, where where he just nails down everything that's right about horror. I mean, The Lighthouse was good. Was nowhere near as good as the witch, mm. but um, I'm just. But he is very, very. He's got an, an impeccable talent for that. So I don't know how frightening the Northman is going to be, but oh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah we covered that before. Next week, yeah. Oh no, I'm hyped about it. Again. Viking Revenge thought. Saga, and like that's the thing. The, the witch. Do we have a release date on that? I'd not, I'd, I haven't actually checked in a while. Yeah, but, well, you say what you're going to say. I'm going to well, look it up. The witch was outstanding. The lighthouse was very good. So, I mean, like, which outstanding, which was 10 out of 10, the Lighthouse will probably give, I don't know, 7.5. It was, Lighthouse was very good. But, you know, they were both horrors in their respective ways. But the Northmans, it doesn't, you know, it sounds like it's going to be a historical thriller, I guess you'd say. Mm. And I'm really interested to see that specific sub- subgenre tackled by Eggers. Because I've got a release date here, actually. I imagine this is tentative, like all release, release dates are at the moment. But this is apparently uh, going to be released on April the 8th of next year. So not that far away. Well, 
fucking as you get older, mate, time just passes and passes. That'll come around for us soon enough. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we'll one be... of the nice things about that is film seems to come out sooner yeah. than you think. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be reviewing it in no time. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, a bit of a short news segment this week, but again, not much going on. Can I just mention one that I read about earlier very, yeah, of very course. quickly? Have you heard about this upcoming film uh, called Free God? Oh, uh, it might have gone to remind me. Jack, James Norton is going to be in the title. It's based on the it's the r- real story of this guy. I think his name was um, it's Robert Henry Freegod. He was a car salesman and a, a pub, a bartender in the 90s. And um, he basically duped loads of people into handing over their life savings by pretending he was an MI5 sleeper agent and that he was working to take down the IRA. And he just, like, seduced... Several loads of women and roped in all these very vulnerable, gullible people, and just like made them hand over all of their life savings, and just made them buy into the this notion that their lives were in mortal danger because he was like a a, a lone wolf working to take down the Irish Republican Army in their cells in the UK, and all, yeah, just like this this like really bizarre, elaborate con that went on for years. And they're and they're um, dramatizing it, and I think it's coming out pretty soon. And I just think, like you know, as a story, a real life story, it's fascinating and sad, and just very, very weird indeed. So, oh, yeah. sounds really, really intriguing. Yeah, yeah. that's you know, yeah, because I mean, it's, it's it sounds like a break from your typical you know con artistry. You know, this guy put a lot of effort into a very, very complex and elaborate and rather capricious and unstable yarn, but the effects that it had on people was absolutely diabolical. You know, he was going around the world and enjoying their finances while they were literally living on a couple of quid a week and sleeping and squatting because they believed him. So, I mean, it's just an, it's an, it's one of those tales where like, you're like, how the fuck could that possibly have yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In reality, yeah, but that's an upcoming one that I was reading about and I thought it sounded uh, very fascinating indeed. And James Norton's done a few things that I think are pretty good. So I'm going to be on the lookout for that one because I really want to see how they handle that. Yeah, awesome stuff. Well, yeah, uh, yeah any uh, any news on that coming up, any more uh, tidbits or whatever? Then, yeah, yeah. Then we'll read Yeah, I'm going to be yeah. surveying it, yeah. Liam does the news. Check that out. <laughs> Okie dokie then. Well, back to our usual uh, program schedule. Liam, of course, has a couple of films to review this week. Uh, I'll let you run, yeah, mate. We can't rock the boat too hard, can we? I feel very trepidatious about ever doing anything that you usually do. Well, I have a little, <laughs> I have rocked the boat a little this week and I've got a film to review rather than TV. Oh, you don't? Oh, okay. Well, so you get three films this week. Yeah, I'm always quite excited about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first up, okay. Uh, no Man of God is a new release that I tucked into. So much to do has been made in recent years. Regarding programs, you know, whether they be uh, web series or motion pictures or documentaries that uh, they fixate on the life and crimes of Theodore Bundy. Yes. You know, you've had, uh, what is it? The, you'd have, you've had the Zac Efron one, extremely wicked, et cetera, et cetera. The had, um, um, Ted Bundy tapes. The Ted that, Bundy tapes. That docuseries that, yeah. that keeps, um, it's very, very good, actually. It keeps still flashing into the Netflix. Well, I think tape. there's at least been a couple of others as well. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, he's, yeah. He's been coming, out, I think since 2017, 2018, he's been, you know, he his story has been sort of ubiquitous on so many true crime dramatizations and documentaries, like, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the latest one in this slew of uh, Bundy fic or Bundy dramatization, rather, because it's not fictional, sorry, <laughs> is uh, No Man of Gods. This is directed by Amber Seeley and written by Kit Lesser. 
And uh, this introduces us to Bill Hagmire. Now, Bill Hagmire was one of the five original members of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. He is, alongside John Douglas, the guy who was, you know, his book Mindhunter. I was going to say, the, yeah, yeah, he crops up in Mindhunter. Bill Hag, yeah, Bill Hagmire is obviously next to John Douglas, essentially considered the best profiler in the world. And between 1984 and 1989, when Bundy was executed, Hagmire spent untold hours sitting with him and conversing with him, talking about everything under the sun to try and get a better handle on why people like Bundy do what they do. And is there anything, is there anything we can harness? Is there anything that we can take away that might help us provide better preemptive action, better care just better overall, you know, just better meta-analyses of everything that it will maybe put a dent in the way that these kind of people operate and put a dent in the number of people who unfortunately go missing, lose their lives because of these predatory personalities. So um, Bill Hagmar is played by Elijah Wood. Now, I'm, I don't know how this is going to come out because I do mean it in essentially a, a good complimentary way, but Elijah Wood is essentially just being Elijah Wood. Elijah's fine. You know, mm. he's, he's, I've never really had anything against him, but whenever I see Elijah Wood, I've, I've never like, thought that Elijah Wood has given a bad performance. But I always see Elijah Wood, even yeah, in stuff I I've say really he's liked. Particularly versatile or range based. No, 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 no that's I mean, necessarily you know, a bad thing. Lord of the Rings, which I controversially, I'm not a very big fan of those films. But as um, Frodo, you know, he does the business. I mean, the quirkier sort of the horror films like Come to Daddy. He was good. He was good in it. And you know, I can't. I can't. Was it? Um, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. He was good, but I never really feel that I'm seeing someone other than Elijah. That being said, as Hagmire, as this sort of uh, perpetually stressed out, pensive, worried FBI agent who is trying to do some good by sitting with and conversing with Bundy and, um, and going sort of pedal to the metal like with regards to his work because he's well aware that Bundy, right from the go, is trying to manipulate him. But he just plays along with it and he capitulates to Bundy's mind games because he just wants to see what he can mine, what he can extrapolate from these interactions. So, yeah, largely the film consists of uh, an interrogation room with Bill and Ted talking with one another about their about their respective backstories, what their lives were like growing up, why Bundy may or may not have committed his crimes because Bundy obviously initially pleads innocence and then he tries to say, oh, you know, it wasn't me. It wasn't me of my own volition. My mind was polluted by so softcore pornography, which he later recanted and said it was all bullshit just to try and, you know, get a, an easier time of things. But um, the thing that um, really drew me into No Man of God and the, th the, the thing that kept me hooked and I think made it somewhat special is the performance of uh, Luke Kirby as Ted Bundy. Now, I've never come across Luke Kirby before, but from the minute he gets into the room and sits across Wood as Hagmire, the way that he gazes at Bill, the, the vocal inflections, this, th this guy seems to have really painstakingly watched 
hours upon hours of footage of Bundy and done his utmost damnedest to replicate the guy's demeanour to a T because I actually think he does a really, really good job of this. Because, you know, you you watch uh, taped interviews and you'll notice that when Bundy's talking to people, he does a lot of leaning forward with both forearms on the table when he'll be looking down a lot and then looking at them and sort of turning his head to look at them. These very, very sort of predatorily quizzical gazes where you you know right off the bat that he's thinking to himself, oh, I've got a new thing to play with, albeit completely psychological. So obviously, he, he, you know, he, all he can do is fuck with Bill Hagmeyer's head as opposed to doing anything physical to him. But I think that Luke Kirby's um, incarnation of Bundy, um, I, was very, I was really sold on it. And this film is predicated on conversation, but uh, the way that his crimes are illuminated in the mind's eye of the viewer um, through Kirby's committed performance. And because this is all based on um, Hagmire's personal recollections and plus lots various transcripts where loads of other people present say so that, you know, so this is, as best we know, a dramatization that is 99% faithful to happenings and conversations that did directly occur. And um, does it, is it the best in this long line of Bundy fixated media phenomena? Well, probably not. But I think that uh, what Kirby does as Bundy, the sort of chemistry, the twisted chemistry between Kirby and Wood as Bundy and Hagmire respectively, the way that Kirby uh, feigns Bundy, you know, feigns Bundy's own feigning because you know, towards the end when Bundy lost his appeal, they shave his head and he's due for the chair at any minute and he's, he has these sort of uh, completely capricious outbursts and uh, erratically claims to have uh, found a purpose. He really wants to help. He really wants to do some good before he dies. And he has these manic ways, manic states in which he expresses that sentiment very forcefully, but then recoils. And uh, the, the, the going consensus is that was all just part of the, the, the psychopathy. It's all part of the game. It's all part of his narcissistic fuel. But the way that Kirby executes that in the film, it is convincing and it is riveting. And um, all in all, even though it's only got that one real key performance, the, just the one key performance that really sucks you in, the supporting cast are good. Elijah Wood does do a good job as... The sort of, uh, you know, the learned man who still has much to be exposed to. And at least the, the way that he portrays the effect that this has on Hagmire is subtle, but it does also, it does work as well. So I don't, I, I don't want to be too unfair. I didn't want to make it sound like I think Elijah Wood gives a, me, a mediocre performance because I don't think he does. He gives a very, very serviceable one. But the, the, the one person that stands out here and again, it's the first time I've seen him in anything, is Kirby. So, I mean, if you want, it's a slow burner and it pretty much only consists of conversations. But that driving force, the driving force um, that the character of Bundy gives you, the character in context of, of the film, um, I think it actually makes it really worth a watch. You know, there, there, there is this pervasive sense of doom. building. You, you never really feel empathy for him, especially if you know everything he's done going in. But the film is very, very careful about never making him seem like a monstrous entity. It, it replicates 
things that he actually said and the ways that he actually said them, you can tell that this man is clearly um, an absolute undiluted case of antisocial personality disorder, but he still is just a man. You know, the, they drama the film dramatizes his personality quirks and his pathological behaviors, but it doesn't make him seem like a devilish mohaha at all. It doesn't go down that ridiculous road. So, uh, yeah, if, if you're interested in the Bundy case, you're just interested in serial killer um, docudramas slash dramatizations in general, uh, No Man of God is actually very interesting. And I, think, I, I think Luke Kirby's portrayal of Ted Bundy is probably the best fictional portrayal of Ted Bundy that I've seen. And yeah, I'd say it's better than Mark Harmon's and better than Zac Efron's. Really so uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's definitely, it, it, it's not going to blow your socks off, but yeah, definitely the best fictional portrayal of Bundy that I've seen. And it's, yeah, it's well acted and it's interesting and engaging. It has very interesting directorial choices made in it. It's, it's a good watch. It's a good watch. It is. I think, I think you, you might get something out of it. You know, it's, it's involving, but it takes you down a very, very dark road. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Like, you know, Captain Redundancy. Yeah. No, it has to be said, but yeah, it'd be really interesting if it turned into The Wizard of Oz, you know. Ted Bundy, the musical. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to make that now. I'm, you know, so I'm that's in, a Trey Parker and a Matt Stone thing, surely. Well, yeah, I mean, Chris Morris did it on Brassoy with old uh, Peter Sutcliffe, didn't he? Yeah. So there's, there's got to be somebody who does the Bundy fucking musical. <laughs> Jesus. So, um, I dusted that off, and then uh, I was. This one seems to have been doing uh, many social media rounds. People have been psyched for uh, this uh, reminiscence. You heard of this one? Yeah, Hugh Jackman, right? Reminiscence, yeah. Neo noir slash science fiction thriller. And it's written and directed by Lisa Joy. Now, obviously, Lisa Joy was involved with Westworld, the, uh, the television series that debuted in, what was it, 2016, 2017? Oh, yeah, yeah, sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the series reboot of the uh, much-loved Michael Crichton movie from the 1970s. And still, and I always hate having to admit this, because I love the 1973 film, I still haven't checked out any of the Westworld series because I'm a lazy piece of shit. Well, you know, <laughs> you're missing a great Anthony Hopkins performance. I know, I know, you know, it's just for shame. But yes, so this is uh, written and directed by Joy in her directorial debut. And yes, as you said, this does indeed star Hugh Jackman as Nick Bannister. Now, Nick Bannister and his friend Emily Sanders, uh, nicknamed Watts, they run a business where um, people come to them in this sort of rather opulent and spooky-looking band. It looks like the abandoned floor of a hotel lobby. It's this great big sort of sweeping indoor space that looks more than a little bit creepy. And uh, they have this uh, sort of hydro chamber in there, and people come to them, and they put on like this headgear that looks suspiciously similar to the kind of head contraptions that people wore in Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days from 95. You know, as soon as I saw it, I think, hmm, I wonder whether they got the design idea Our design that department had an easy ride, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, they, they submerged themselves in these, I guess you call it a hydro chamber, with this headgear on, and they closed their eyes, and Nick Bannister, Hugh Jackman, walks sort of around them, and comes before a hologram platform and he speaks to the person in the chamber and says, you know, um, follow the sound of my voice. You know, we're going 
into, you know, we go, we're going to take a journey into your memories. We're going to take a journey into your past. All you have to do is follow the sound of my voice and relax and just allow, just, just allow things to manifest. And as they're doing this, the memories of the person in the chamber, they come to life on this great big holographic platform. And uh, people come to Nick and Watts for this service for a whole host of reasons. You have people who um, they want to revisit the um, the last time they had an embrace with a loved one who's lo no longer with them. Um, they want to they, they want to see if they can tread back a, a moment in their past where they believe was um, fundamentally character forming in a way that has always eluded them and they need to like retread it so they can maybe get some closure, maybe get something out of it. Maybe remember things that they, you know, recall things that they may have noticed at the time but have faded. It's a service that allows you to be fully there, fully immersed in the pastime of your own cerebrum in a way, you know, to bring closure, to be therapeutic or to help you. But uh, even though their business seems to be popular, uh, there's constant talk of, uh, you know, not being able to pay the rent and uh, got loads of overheads because Nick seems to, Nick is kind of, uh, you know, he's Hugh Jackman, so he's a big, gruff kind of guy. We, we're we informed that him and Watts have military paths, but Nick, underneath the big, muscly, gruff exterior, because he is a relatively tough guy, but he's kind of a big, soppy puppy dog at heart. He gives people sessions on the house because he feels really bad for them and he empathises with them, you know, so right, right off the bat, this is our kind of... Uh, grizzly bear with the heart of a teddy bear sort of protagonist. Well, one day, um, a young woman named May walks in to their establishment. May, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who was uh, Rose the Hat in Doctor Sleep. Probably the one thing I really liked about Doctor Sleep. But uh, May is a young woman. She's a torch singer. And uh, she has lost her keys. She comes to them after closing time and announces that she's lost her keys and she wants to get into the chamber and see if Nick can have a look at the holographic representations of her memories and see what she's done with her keys. That seems like a really spurious use for yeah. what is unbelievable technology. Yeah, yeah, this is the, yeah that, as soon as it was playing out, you know, in, in real time it was playing out, I, I had the exact same... You're sure you don't want to go back did. to your first kiss? Yeah, or, I just thought, like, what the fuck is this? this is, what an absolutely boring utility of this incredible in-world technology. Bang on the money, man. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, she gets in the chamber, obviously, her thoughts materialise. She was at the club <clears throat> where she's a tour singer and she's in the dressing room prepping and she empties out all her bag because she's looking for something and the keys drop on the floor. So it's like, oh, your keys dropped on the floor, yay. And uh, But then it segues into May coming onto the stage of the nightclub and singing a song. And this song also happens to be Nick's favourite song of all time. So he's obviously immediately entranced by this and by her physical beauty. And he almost immediately falls head over heels in love with her, I would say. Much to the chagrin of Watts, who um, doesn't really trust May, thinks there's something iffy about her. And so they fall into, her and Nick fall into their thing but then one day she just goes missing right out of the blue. She goes missing out of nowhere. Nick falls into a deep depression. He starts to use and abuse the uh, memory chamber himself over and over again. 
um, reliving memories that he had during their brief time together. And he becomes utterly obsessed with finding out why May disappeared, if she's still alive, whether she was holding off on telling him a lot of things about who she really is, what she's really up to, if her walking into their establishment that night was pure coincidence or if there's something more fishier and duplicitous afoot and it's all mixed up in this conspiratorial, organised crime, futuristic extravaganza that's kind of part Blade Runner and part pick this Nolan film, etc. Et I thought the poster looked particularly Blade Runner. It's Hugh Jackman in the long duster jacket. Yes, the, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, right, reminiscence. I thought upon reading about this film, it had a very cool concept, which is obviously what I was suckered in by. The cinematography is very, very interesting. The 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 the, the interior world building, a lot of the special effects, and uh, the you know the fact that the city's gone nocturnal because uh, the de- the daily heat is so oppressive. It's gotten to the point where people sleep during the day and open their businesses and everything at night. So it's become a city of nocturnal homo sapiens. And it's got that dreary neo-noir mood to the screenplay and um, melds that, uh, obviously, with this um, magic, uh, like, hyper-impressive, futuristic gizmo. Oh, is there something innately poignant and stirring about being able to go into the past and what it, what, you know, how that would change your perceptions if you merely then relive your memories as you would normally do? You can actually relive them as if they were um, a, a sense predicated VR experience. So you literally are. It's a very, very interesting themes. It looks great, couldn't really go wrong. Well, it does. (laughs) This film is so boring and convoluted with not one gripping, believable performance to get your teeth sunk into. Says Hugh Jackman, who I loved him. I I, I had no problem, no quarrel with Hugh Jackman as an actor at all. I thought he was fantastic um, as Keller Dover in Prisoners. I really loved him in Logan. He's done loads of things where I thought he was great. The guy is talented. And he is making an effort here, but he's making an effort with one of the lamest, corniest fucking scripts that I have witnessed in such a long time. The dialogue is so rote and unimaginative and so machine-like and so, you know, it's, it's only just above the average soap opera tier. And it's right, all these narrative strands, it's got these sub, it just throws them all at a wall in this great big bubblegum-like cacophony. It just goes, oh, yes, we got this and this surprise and this surprise and this, oh, I bet you didn't see that coming, did you? And it's like, oh, God, Nick didn't know this. Oh, what's he going to do about this? Oh, oh, my God, was May actually a drug? They've got this drug called Baca. There's some bizarre hallucinogen that's, I think it's intimated to be uh, however many hundred times more addictive than heroin. Very, very easy to get hooked on. And um, So this is very neuromancer light then, are we saying? Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's a good comparison. But it, Every cyberpunk future has to have a drug that everyone's addicted to, but now it's legalised, but some yes. people are overdosing. And is there, who's supplying the drug? And, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a big cyberpunk it, yeah, cliche. It, isn't yeah, it? it weaves, or it tries to weave all those threads, but it does it in this, it just rushes the fuck out of it. It throws so many things into the blender at once. And it also doesn't seem to be able to decide whether it is a neo-noir or whether it's an action thriller. Because you have Hugh Jackman as Nick, this, 
sort of tormented and taciturn and gruff, but fundamentally still kind of decent sort of chap who has a bit of a checkered past, but he's all right, really. And, um, you know, he's just sort of typical neo-noir hero. For a lot of it, he functions almost, he's got the demeanour of sort of like a neo-noir P.I., you know, he's grizzled and he doesn't, you know, let too much of himself on and is he going to find the girl or find the MacGuffin or whatever the fuck and, you know, is he going to take down the goons and it switches in between that and him just being this badass action hero. I know I mentioned that his character was a military veteran, but tonally it's just ridiculous. It doesn't know whether it wants to be the new Blade Runner or the new Vin Diesel film. It just like goes into all these stupid scenes of Victor, oh, Hugh Jackman's having his ass kicked, but then he starts kicking the guys, and it's just like, wah, wah, bang, brute force fighting, boss, boss, boss. And then, Nick, you've got to stop chasing me. You're wasting your life. Is it? Oh, it was a god-awful fucking mess. I could not wait for this film to end. It is so, it's so overly ambitious. It doesn't succeed in any of those ambitions. I hated watching it. It was torturous to watch. Please, please stay away from this film. It's got really great ideas and it looks really good. And atmospherically, they seem to get some stuff on. But all, all the sheen, all the veneer is there. But trying to tie it all together, trying to like make it this organic shoot off into this wonderful world of its own, highly imaginative, revolutionary sci-fi tale, it fucking tanks so badly. Um, and I just, I feel really, because there are other people who are obviously long-time Westworld fans who are really psyched for this because they're thinking, oh, Lisa Joy is a writer-directorial debut and she's just sci-fi and it's got such a really cool synopsis. So, so let down. It's really bad, man. Yeah, well, Honestly, that's I, a shame. Yeah, because as you said, I mean, the premise sounds great. I like Hugh Jackman too. But um, yeah, it sounds like it's dropped the ball. I know this. Sound, I know I'm, sound, I'm sounding like very, very, very opprobrious here, but it's because it was. It had such a tantalising and and thought provoking theory as a plot, but it just. It, you know, does it pick up the ball and run with that ball for any amount of time with regards to exposition? And, uh, you know, the actual, the implications, the net, the, the emotional implications and, the, you know, the long-term implications. No, it doesn't. No, it's an absolute failure. And um, it's one of the, one of my most disliked films of the year so far. I thought it was rubbish. Fair enough. So, yeah. Zero stars. Stay, stay away from that one. <laughs> okay, then. Well, as I stated earlier, uh, no TV of the week this week. Um, because I watched a film over the weekend. A film? Yeah, and I wasn't really intending to review it. I thought well, maybe I might end up doing it on the premium. Um, but then I watched it and I thought, no, I need to talk about it. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about it now. And this is The Tomorrow War, uh, currently available on Amazon Prime in the UK, and I believe Amazon Prime just about everywhere else, really. It seems to be a... I'm not entirely sure, actually, if it was an Amazon Prime original, but it seems to be something they're picking up and pushing very, very hard anyway. And it stars good old Chris Pratt. What are your thoughts on Chris Pratt? Um, I liked him when he was in Parks and Rec. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's about um, Guardians of the Galaxy, I, I would say, was uh, was fairly good as well. But that seems to be just about where everybody stands on Chris I don't, Pratt. In all, in all honesty, I don't mean this in a... If I could give like the most truthful answer to your question... When you say what are your thoughts on Chris Pratt, I don't really have any. I just don't I don't really think because the guy just hasn't really made that much of an impression on me. He's just there. 
I've just looked up, actually. I should have done this beforehand. It was originally set for a theatrical release by Paramount. Um, but after the whole COVID thing, um, it's been acquired by Amazon and is therefore theirs now. And they're, they're touting it around as is their original work, like Amazon has a tendency Indeed. to do. But anyway, yeah, let's get on some plot setup with this. Um, well, we first meet Chris Pratt, of course. He's playing James Daniel Dan Forrester Jr., Fucking hell, that's a mouthful. Yeah, we'll call well, him Dan. Call, call him Dave Smith or something. We'll call him Dan for the rest of yeah. this review. Everyone else does. And uh, yeah, he is going to a Christmas party in middle America, set in the modern day. And he's coming in with um, presents and gifts and things, walking through the door. And there's a lot of people at his very nice suburban home, all having a Christmas party. And on in the background is the World Cup, of all things. It's Americans watching soccer. And everyone's having a nice time. Drinks flowing, the buffet table's going, everybody's, you know, everybody's in like a Christmas upbeat spirit kind of mood. But uh, good old Dan is a little bit distracted because he is currently a biology teacher. And he lets it be known very, very early on that he comes from like an ex-military background. So he's back out the military and he's now working as a biology teacher, but not feeling particularly satisfied about it. So he has a phone interview coming up very, very shortly and he's a bit nervous about it. And his wife and his young daughter, she's about eight years old at the time, are um, very being supportive, but they're also having this big family party and he's rushing around trying to sort out all their little, you know, she's upset that no one's eating her, the tuna thing she made. And it's all very middle America suburban life. Yeah. So Dan goes outside to take this uh, phone interview for the new job. And unfortunately, he doesn't get it. And he knows the interview went badly and he kicks the shit out of a bin, um, you know, as you do. And uh, goes goes back into the party and sort of keeps a lid on it for the sake of his family and for the sake of the guests at the party. You know, oh, well, never mind. Things will come up in future. And so he sits down on the sofa with his daughter to watch the World Cup. And the party's turned at this point because it's a very, very exciting game. And he's having a conversation with his daughter and she's doing that childlike reassurance thing where she's going, don't worry, Dad, it's, you know, things will turn out all right in the end. And he says, you know, I just feel like something special is going to happen in my future. I'm destined for greater things. Well, as he's saying this and watching the World Cup, one of the players grabs the ball and streaks off down to the other side of the pitch. He's going to score. It's going to be very, very exciting. Everybody is now wrapped and screaming at the television. When suddenly on the pitch, a huge purple rift appears. And out of this rift comes all of these sort of uh, futuristic special ops soldiers, one by one by one, and a woman leading them. And everybody's astounded and watching and jaws have dropped and going, what the hell's going on here? And this woman leading them addresses everybody at the World Cup. And she's perfectly mic'd as well, which is interesting for appearing in the middle of a football pitch. But this is all televised beautifully back at home for the world to see. And she says, we come from the future, 30 years from the future, where there is a war in progress. And we as the, the human species are losing. So we've come back in time to draft people from the past to come and fight the war in the future in the hope that we may eventually overcome. And everybody is obviously absolutely astounded by this. The world has changed. We skip forward 12 months and we get some um, news footage of how the world has changed at this point. Things are going very, very badly in this future war. So much so that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have since been taken through these gates to fight in the, the war that's going on in the future. And it's gone so badly that I think it's something like 10% of them have been coming back. And it's got to the point now where the world's soldiers have now become depleted. Now people are starting to recruit civilians to go and fight the tomorrow war. 
So Chris Pratt, Dan, is going about his daily life as a biology teacher. He's trying to teach his kids science, but they're not very interested because they're thinking to themselves, well, what's the point? What's the point of educating ourselves to get a better life in the future if we know for a fact that the future is going to be horrendous and we're going to lose whatever terrible, terrible conflict this is? And so Dan is starting to get very, very disheartened by all of this until he receives a message telling him that unfortunately, as a civilian with ex-military qualifications, he has been drafted. So he goes to this facility, he starts giving them his paperwork, and he is put in a chair and his arm shoved into a machine. And in this machine, they clamp this huge cuff bracelet thing onto his forearm. And this is going to track him from this point forward. It's essentially a, a GPS tracking device that's going to stop him from running away. And it also handily has a clock built into it so he can tell when his service is up. Mm. Because they say to him, look, you know, you only need to go into the future for what is in your time anyway, about 24 hours. And if you survive, we'll pull you back out again using this device. Unfortunately, not many people do. And they can use this machine to look into Dan's future. And they reveal that Dan is going to die in seven years regardless anyway. So this obviously shakes him to the core a lot. And there's nothing much he can really do about being drafted. So he goes to see his wife and his wife says, look, let's, let's just run. Let's just run away. And he goes, well, I can't because I've got this cuff like surgically implanted to me now. I can't just run. She goes, well, you're going to need to go and find somebody that can take that cuff off. And we both know who we're talking about. And Dan goes, oh, no, you know, anybody but him. We get another cut and he's gone off to meet James Daniel Forrester Sr., his father, played by J.K. Simmons. Oh, Okay. Well, now his father is a very, very shady character indeed. It's J.K. Simmons with the big beard. And you know how ripped and muscled he is these days. He's in an aircraft hangar in the middle of nowhere. Um, There's this big insinuation that he's very, very anti-government. He used to be a Vietnam War veteran. Came back, um, got a little freaky. Is he a libertarian? Yeah, very, very much so, (laughs) I would say. Got a little freaky with it. Um, Dan didn't want to go and see him because after he got back from the war, he essentially isolated himself from the family. Therefore, wasn't a very good father to Dan. But Dan turns up with his cuff and says, look, if anybody can get this off my arm, you can. He looks at it and says, yeah, no, I can take that off for you. And they start having a chat about their past. It all goes a bit badly wrong. All the the hurt from childhood gets brought back up. And Dan goes, you know what? Fuck you. I'm not going to let you take it off. I'm going to go and fight and do my duty. So he goes back to the training facility uh, with a bunch of other recruits. And their training is virtually non-existent. It is essentially that there's no point putting months into training you guys when only 10% of you are going to come back anyway. So you don't even need to wear a uniform or anything. We're basically going to give you a bulletproof vest and a gun. We're going to form you into teams. You're going to get picked up into this dimensional rift and you're going to get dropped into the war. Fight as many of the enemy as possible. And if you survive, we'll pull you out in 24 hours. So... Dan and a few friends he's made along the way. And obviously I'm skipping forward a little bit here. There's, there are a few comedy side characters with him at this point. They all are in the middle of the night, sleeping in their bunks when they get a call that they were supposed to drop the next morning, but something has gone horribly wrong in the future. So they need to be dropped in now. So they all gather in this big like arena-sized hall and stand a certain distance apart, which is probably for COVID social distancing reasons. And they are essentially sucked up into what I can only describe as a gigantic interdimensional rift space hoover. They all get sort of sucked up into the ceiling. And as they're going up, the people, the, their commanders are telling them, don't worry, you'll be ready because when you come out the other side, you're only going to be between 10 and 8 foot from the floor. So there's going to be a bit of a drop. When they drop in, 
to the other side in the future, once they've gone through this interdimensional portal, they're not eight to 10 feet from the floor. They are above the skyscrapers of Miami, uh, very, very much up in the air. And they all fall, most of them obviously falling to their doom on this very apocalyptic landscape beneath them. Thankfully, Chris Pratt and a few of his mates managed to land on the top of a skyscraper that just so happens to have a swimming pool on it. And this is shown in like a pre credit scene as well. The first thing you actually get of Dan is him falling through how, the How far, all, all this uh, exposition you're doing, how far are we into the film at this moment? Oh, uh, we're about 20 minutes in okay, at right. this point. Okay, but anyway, Dan has survived and a few of his mates around him have survived. They've all landed in the swimming pool. They now have to fight through the apocalyptic ruined Miami against this mysterious foe. Let me actually stop, stop the exposition here and start talking about one of the very good things about this film. The mysterious foe, as I'm sure you've been wondering throughout this review, the white spikes, as they're called, are these sort of white tentacled monsters with huge jaws that are able to, they leap and bound and claw and scratch and tear their way around the landscape. No one knows quite where they came from. No one knows if it was an alien event or, or whatever that's revealed later in the film. But all, all of a sudden, one day, they just turned up en masse and started massacring the human population. And this is why the Earth's population at this point has gone down to, I think it's 500,000 people, which is why they decided to use their technology to go back in time to get more people in the hope of defeating the white spikes. The white spikes are genuinely scary and genuinely terrifying. Yeah, They're, yeah, really, really got me, actually. They're animated beautifully, and they sort of shudder and roar and twitch and shake. And there's several... One of their first reveals is in, like, a staircase. A very, there's, a like, tight corridors going into a staircase. You get this set piece where they break through. And to see the animation work and the CGI and the, just the, the level of effort that's been put into them, they are really, really they sort of make you pull back from the screen a little bit. And as the fighting goes on, it's revealed that it's not just, I mean, to be stuck in a building with one of these things is kind of like being stuck in a building with a xenomorph, right? But once you once everything moves outside, you realize the earth has been overrun by these, like a, a swarming plague. They're like hornets. Just one of them is massively dangerous. The earth is overcome by hundreds of millions, if not billions of these creatures. This really is the, the war to end all wars. And while Dan is in the future, he meets up with someone from his past who I'm going to obviously keep shtum about and finds that there's more of a tie-in to what's going on in the future than he first anticipated. So you're sort of okay with the exposition on that. That's kind of a lot. Yeah, as, as in like, there's you know, more to come. Yeah, it's just, it's just like that's that sounds like. Yeah, okay. Lot. The premise is that yeah, a terrible war against monsters in the future. They're, they're actually going back in time to grab people to come and fight the war in the hope that this won't eventually happen. Oh yeah, no, yeah. It just it's from your description so far, it just sounds a little bit like bang, bang, bang. Right. Well, I'm glad you understand the plot because the film doesn't. <laughs> um, and neither it sounds like neither it. does James Daniel Dan Forrester Jr. or Chris Pratt for purposes of this review. I mean, let me give you an experience of what it was like for me to watch this film. I watched the first third of it with one eyebrow raised, going, "Huh." this is actually a fair bit better than I thought it would be. Once the monster reveal got there and everything, I thought, wow, those are actually kind of chilling and terrifying. This is actually really well done. It looks great as well. It's got some huge action set pieces in it that are really lavish, I would say, and very kinetic and energetic and all those things you want out of a good set piece. That was the, the first third of the film. Second third of the film, I watched it with my hands on my head, yelling at the screen, 
because it doesn't have plot holes, this film. It has plot chasms. <laughs> it has big gaping wounds in the plot where it's like, you know, whenever we review time travel stuff, we're always quite forgiving on the podcast because time travel is inherent in, a con- in terms of a conceptual thing as being broken. No one's going to be able to do it accurately because no one knows how time travel yeah, works. You can't if it really would work be a pedant about it, can you? Because the problem some... is this film sets up its own laws within the universe of time travel and then ignores them entirely. The film doesn't understand its own time travel conceit. <laughs> uh, and Daniel Dan Forrester doesn't either. I mean, there are moments in this where me and my girlfriend were literally yelling at the screen where he's going, there's a point where he's trying to save somebody going, I can't let you die like this, but you're about to go back in time. So it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> does it? We get that. Why don't you get this? Like the, the film and on its absolute level doesn't understand its own core concept. The last third of the film, I laughed my fucking ass off. I was howling with laughter because the film actually ends at the end of act two. A momentous event is achieved that essentially means, oh, well, you've done that now. And everything's because then obviously after this, that will follow, and then that will follow, and then that will, that will follow. And the, you know, the the monsters will be defeated at this point, and the film can be over and it ends. No, 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 no. It's like the film suddenly decided, oh shit, hang on a minute, this is only an hour and a half worth of content. We promised Paramount, or uh, yeah, I think it was Paramount, wasn't it? But you know, eventually Amazon in this case, they want a third more of a film. Shit, well, how are we going to get past that? Rather than rewrite it, and rather than sort of stretch out and make act two into act three and then put a middle act in, yeah, but put some extra stuff in, some extra character work or something like that. No, no, no. What we'll do is we'll write a third act into it that doesn't need to be there in the slightest. It's like the film runs out of concept and then decides, ah, fuck it, we'll go and do Alien instead. <laughs> and so what you get then is everybody going off to the Arctic to do Alien for a bit. And uh, you get an action... Well, with one of these white spike things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is literally doing Alien at that point as well. I mean, it is as close to Alien as you can possibly get. Despite the fact that everybody knows rationally the film should have ended by now. They just decided to have all the characters ignore the fact that rationally the film would end here because we've still got a third act to get through. And you end up with this huge fight action sequence at the end that is so funny. It had me howling in my seat. Tears were running down the side of my face. You know what's a good comparison to this film, actually? What? Geostorm. Oh, wow. Gerald Butler. Yeah. They is, took the weather and they turned it into a gun. <laughs> it, it is that stupid. It is that silly. And there's some really horrible theming going on in here. So one of the things that the film tries to play with at certain moments is the concept of PTSD. So Chris Pratt's wife is um, a, a therapist for soldiers that are coming back from the future war. And they've all come back uh, missing limbs and missing parts of themselves as well. And they, obviously, you know, especially with Af- Afghanistan and everything being in the news at the moment, PTSD is a big deal. That's what happens to soldiers. And obviously, if you're being sent off to fight these horrible white spike creatures and everybody got mowed down apart from you and you were one of the 10% that managed to make it back, you'd be really fucked up by that. Yeah. At points, the film tries to play with that concept and then just abandons it entirely. There are points where I thought, oh, actually, this is going to try and make a point about how people change through the horrors of war. No, 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 no. We're just going to allude to it to a bit and then go, hang on a minute, Act 3 needs to come up. Let's bring back J.K. Simmons. And it (laughs) is just fucking horrendous. This film is a mess. The characterization is a mess. I haven't even got into the fact that Dan is revealed to do some things in the past that, you know, I'm not even going to go into it. His character is essentially, as best as I can tell, supposed to be schizophrenic. 
because it makes no sense whatsoever as to what you're supposed to have done in the past to piss off the person in the future. I mean, I'd have to go into spoilers to explain what it is. You'll watch it and you'll see what I mean. The characterization makes no sense. The plot makes no sense, which is normally fine in the time travel thing, except the film doesn't even understand its own fucking conceit that the audiences are supposed to go with. And it ends with the most hilarious action scenes I've ever seen. Um, again, I can't spoil it, but what I will say is for those people who are going to watch it for fun, and I kind of recommend you do, wait for the skidoo. You know what a skidoo is? Like a snowmobile with the yeah. tracks at the back? Yeah. Wait for it. Because I actually went back and watched it again because I laughed so fucking hard. It is so stupidly ridiculous. I don't know what to make of this film. I don't, I mean, it's a bad film. It's, it's quite a bad film. The first third is actually genuinely quite good. The middle section is baffling. And the third part is hilarious. <laughs> and what the best thing about it, and the reason why I'm comparing it to Geostorm, is the funniest thing about Geostorm was that it was hilarious and it had no idea that it was hilarious. That's the Tomorrow War. It's got no idea how funny it is. And that actually makes it funnier. So, I mean, it's god awful, but boy, did I have fun with it. It's essentially my review here. Oh, well, I mean, at least it's one of those. Yeah. 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 I, I really, really want you to watch it. I really, really... Oh, man, there's a third of a good film, a third of a terrible film, and a third of a so bad it's good. All mashed into one. And it's getting a sequel soon, apparently, because it did very, very well on streaming. But man, I mean, what a ride. It is terrible. It is awful. It is badly written. It's badly characterized. It's playing with themes it doesn't understand. And yet somehow out of the end of it, part of me kind of liked it. Well, I mean, I'm definitely, I'm tempted to watch it for the portion that you described favorably. I'd love to know what your yeah, opinion is. Ironically favorably. Have me yeah. shouting at the screen yeah. at points. Really, really Hopefully good. I'll have the sort of... Uh, you know, the patience and the open-mindedness to enjoy the uh, dross angle for what it is. So, so fucking stupid. That's <laughs> the stupidest thing I've watched this year. Really, really is. It's just, oh, painful. <laughs> and how, how would you summarize, I mean, Chris Pratt's performance? Oh, you know what Chris Pratt's performance is. It's the same character he always plays. Yeah. It's the kind of goofy, lovable guy that's actually capable of really serious army stuff when he needs to be. That's, ex- that's who Chris Pratt plays. He used to just play the funny, goofy guy, and then he got ripped for Jurassic Park. And ever since, he's played the same character again and again. So that's what you're going to get there. I'm delivering some really cheesy action movie dialogue in the meantime that is just ripped straight from 80s B-movies. I mean, it's... I could talk... We're running out of time now. I could talk about this film for about an hour. I really, really could. And at some point, we, we might do a spoiler thing on the premium podcast of me really going into it. I'm running out of time because there are so many things wrong with it. And yet somehow it sort of ends up being right because by the end of it, you're, you died. I just sat back afterwards and needed a cigarette, you know? It sounds like an enchanting mess. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good one for the poster. I'll get stuck into that one. Right, yeah, as I said, we're running out of time, but let's finish off with some trivia, Indeed. as we always do. Um, I thought based on your review of, what was it, Reminiscence? Reminiscence. Reminiscence, yeah, yeah. And I was... Debating earlier how the hell I'm going to say that on the podcast. Reminiscent. Yeah, it's one of those made-up stupid words, isn't it? But anyway, I thought I'd do some trivia on memory. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, Yeah, I couldn't really think of much else to do this week. And actually, memory is a really interesting subject. Yeah, it is. Ties in with the film, even though the film was terrible. Got into your estimation. Do feed me some facts, sir. According to Northwestern University psychology professor Paul Reber, our brains have the capacity to store up to 2.5 petabytes of data. That's the equivalent of 3 million hours of TV shows or about the same storage as nearly 4,256 gigabyte iPhones. Holy shit. (laughs) Mm. 
So when you, you feel like, you know, there's that thing about um, when you can't remember something, you're like, oh, it's because I've learned so much stuff recently. It's pushed some old stuff out. No, 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 no. You have a, enough memory capacity for like 300 years, apparently. It's fucking nuts, yeah. It's, and that, I mean, I suppose that's why things just pop into your head. You know, that, I mean, because you, you know the, the whole phenomenon about your life flashing before your eyes. Mm. You know, because obviously your brain is dumping everything to see if you've been in a complex yeah, situation, yeah. see if you can remember something to get yourself out of it. But I suppose like when something just hovers into like the forefront of your mind out of nowhere, I guess it's just some, I don't know, some sort of trigger, some sort of trigger that nobody yeah. would notice. You know, you, 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 have, you have no conception of, you know, it's... That uh, actually ties in nicely to the next bit, actually, because th this is about um, triggers to your memory. Entering or exiting through a doorway serves as an event boundary in the mind, which separates episodes of activity and files them away, psychologist Gabriel Radansky told Live Science. When he and his team study the difference between subjects moving objects between rooms versus subjects moving objects in the same room, he found that people were two to three times as likely to forget what they were supposed to do after walking through a doorway. So yeah, apparently this is a, well, every time you walk, you know, that thing when you walk in a room, you can't remember what you came in for. Yeah. Apparently your brain literally views doorways as a, a, a signal to file away everything that was in the other room and concentrate on what's in the new room. Well, that's annoying. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why that happens. Interesting, <laughs> I thought. Jesus. That's pretty, I mean, that's nuts, man. How many times have you gotten frustrated with yourself for procrastinating on an important assignment? Well, don't get too upset because research indicates that procrastination is actually an important tool for getting things done. When we're not actively focusing on something, it allows your subconscious to work on ideas in the background while you do other things. This effect is particularly noticeable during menial tasks. Ever wonder why you get so many eureka moments in the shower? Oh. Yeah, apparently when you're doing like, often right before we do the podcast, I always clean the kitchen down. I clean everything in the kitchen. Because it, it helps me, as I'm just doing that menial work of like scrubbing away, it helps me put together what we're going to talk about in the review I'm going to do later and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So but apparently uh, procrastinating is actually good for your memory. Well, who would have thought? All the, people, all the naysayers, all the people who give procrastination a bad name, fuck you. In the mid-1600s, there was a piece of music composed by Italian composer Gregorio Allegri that could only be performed in the Sistine Chapel and was not to be written down for circulation. Up until 1770, only three copies of the work existed, but after hearing the piece just once, 14-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was able to transcribe it entirely from memory. A few months later, the genius composer was called back to Rome by Pope Clement XIV, who praised his talents and awarded him the chivalric order of the golden sperm. Oh, wow. I mean, as well, it's important to remember, the piece of music composed in the 1600s, that would have been a very, very long piece of music. Indeed, You're probably yeah. looking like 15, 20 minutes. And he remembered it just from hearing it once and was able to transcribe it. What a memory on good old Wolfgang. Fucking show off. <laughs> and you know how I like to finish out with a funny one. I do. Um, well, I, I'm not going to finish out with a funny one this week. I'm going to finish out with a terrifying fact about memory. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, this affects me and it affects you and it probably affects everybody listening as well. So pay attention to this one. Netflix and chill... More like Netflix and kill, your brain cells, that is. One study published in Brain and Cognition magazine discovered that for every hour a person between the ages of 40 and 59 spends watching TV, their risk of developing Alzheimer's increases by 1.3%. 
That is pretty fucking terrifying. Yeah. For every hour. Now, I mean, I'm 33 and you're recently 33 as well. But I mean, okay, so if that happens between the ages of 40 and 59 and 1.3%, surely in your 30s, then it's got to be at least a half a percent, right? I would have thought so. For every hour. I mean, I, I watch probably 20 hours of Netflix a week for this podcast. Looks like you're fucked. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so is everybody else. I'm recommending. And me, people. and me. You know, I'm not, I don't get off the hook. What we're doing on this podcast is recommending ways for people to get Alzheimer's. Well, we are a pair of bastards. Yeah, well, apparently yes. so. Yeah, we didn't realize we were actually hurting people. But I mean, you know, I guess if we're all fucked, then we're all fucked together. I mean, who doesn't, who hasn't watched more than an hour of fucking Netflix? Is binge watching just going to mean that we're all like completely screwed by the time we're in our 60s and 70s? Very probably. Yeah, probably, you know, but, you know, it's uh, ever since the millennium, things have just got exponentially more horrible for humankind. So it's right at home, that fact. What a ride though, right? <laughs> Indeed. So there you go, sleep tight tonight, dear <laughs> cinematologists. Yeah, have a think about that one next time you're on your uh, Netflix watching binge. I know I will be. That's, uh, yeah, what a note to end the podcast on anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. Uh, we're going to go and record the premium content now. Um, this week, I believe Liam has an extra take to do. Yes, I do. Uh, I um, actually, I've never, I'd never seen the second Wolf Creek, even though it was released some years ago now. And I was always a massive fan of the 2005 original. So yeah, I just wanted to talk about the sequel and how it compares to the first one and the sort of the franchise itself and um, the central character who I've always been an enormous fan of. I don't believe I've ever mentioned um, that universe on the podcast. No, I don't think you have. And it's and it's just one that uh, gives me quite a bit of a kick, even though it's a bit too um, insane for some people's tastes. Uh, I just thought it would be, be a bit fun just to give that one a nod. Yeah, cool and, stuff. Uh, yeah, and then we're going to uh, continue our uh, comedy premium. Yeah, we were having so much fun with naming our favourite comedies last week. And obviously there's millions of them and we've only got an hour format to work in. So we've rolled it over to this week as well. Yeah, so and we've... I, um, the, the, the ones I mentioned last week, even though I am an enormous fan of them, some of them were pretty damn dark, even though I do find and them hilarious. Nobody in the audience expects anything less. No, but, 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 but yeah, but fear not, because there's a lot on the list that are actually just comedy comedies where nothing necessarily super disturbing happens. So I <laughs> do I do have some quote-unquote normal ones. Even so. more fun. But yes, if you're interested in any of that, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page. You can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast. You can follow Liam at... I'm Liam at the movies and I'm at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely. Okay, well, that kind of wraps it up for this us this week. I uh, hope to see you on the free one next week and hope to see you on the premium, of course, as well. Uh, yeah, take it easy, guys.